0: So if you were here the last time that I preached, I went through the first part of chapter 1 of the book of Ruth. And just to kind of give a recap of what happened, um, it was the day when the judges ruled in the land of Israel. And Elimelech and his wife, Naomi, and their two sons, Malon and Chilion, had moved away to the land of Moab. Uh, it appears that they had moved away because of famine, and so they had moved, and both Malon and Chilion had taken wives in that land. So they were there for quite a while, at least ten years they were there. They had taken wives there, and while there, Elimelech got sick and died. That was Naomi's husband, and then shortly after, both of her sons got sick and died. So we have the story now of three widow women, one older and two younger. Um, and in that time period, it's hard for us, I think, to maybe understand. But in that time period and in that place, being a widow was an extremely difficult thing. It is any time. I mean, obviously, that is, a, that is a difficult thing. But livelihood in those times was much more difficult than it is now. And so we can kind of see this um, as we go through this story. And Naomi was in great anguish. And she had heard, she got word that there was the famine had ended in Israel and there was good crops being raised there. And so she decided she is going to move back to Israel. And her two in laws that were Moabites... Decided they wanted to go with her. And she tries to talk them out of it. And she she goes through her anguish. Um, and and verse 16. In Ruth chapter 1 verse 16. She said. Do not urge me. To, or no. Not, not yet. Before that. Naomi just kind of goes through her anguish. And she's like. I don't have any more sons. I don't know why you would want to follow me. I have no more sons for you to marry. There's nothing for you if you come with me. And so one of the daughter-in-laws turns back, but but the other Ruth says in verse 16, do not urge me to leave you or return from following you for where you go, I will go and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God, where you die, I will die and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything, but death parts me from you. So despite all of Ruth's pleas and logical arguments that you should stay here in Moab, there's nothing for you. Why would you want to come with me? I'm an old widow woman. I have nothing to offer you. Ruth says no. It's not going to happen. And the key in this is your people shall be my people and your God shall be. My God. The Moabites were heathens. The Moabites were pagans. They had no truth of the God of scriptures. They had no idea of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So in somewhere in this whole process, this whole time when Elimelech and Naomi left and goes to Moab and her son marries Ruth, somewhere in there, Ruth is converted. She turns from the pagan ways of the Moabites and turns to the true sovereign God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. She says, your God shall be my God, and your people shall be my people. And I stopped there last time, but as we look now, we'll look at verse 18. It says, and when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. See, as Naomi was trying to reason with Ruth to stay, it's hopeless if you return to me. I have no more sons. She had forgotten about a law given by a sovereign God to take care of them. God's law was established to take care of his people. And there were provisions in place to do that had she been where in, in Israel with her people. But she had forgotten that, so she's trying to talk her out of it. But Ruth, the Moabitess, at some point had been taught the things of God. And so she made this amazing commitment to Naomi, but more importantly, in this commitment, in verse 17, or verse 16 and 17, she made a commitment to God and it transcend her commitment to Naomi. And once Ruth I think reminded Naomi of this, once she brought this out, Naomi let it go. She said no more. The commitment no doubt would have been the beginning of the change of Naomi's heart. See Naomi is in she's in a very bitter state. She's in a, she's in a lot of anguish. She's in a lot of pain. She's lost her husband, she's lost her sons. She has no idea where each meal is coming from. And so, but now we're going to see through her Moabitess daughter-in-law, we're going to see change start to occur. But we don't see it immediately. So in verse 19, look at verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi. So it's a long journey, probably 10, 12 days journey from where they were to Beth, back to Israel, back to Bethlehem. And journey, you know, traveling those times, um, obviously much more difficult than it is today. Traveling those times were uh, very difficult. They were probably on foot, they were poor, so they obviously didn't have some sort of animal to carry their burden, probably didn't have a lot to carry probably didn't have much food, water was scarce, so it was it was a difficult journey. So when they walked into Bethlehem, I'm sure they were not exactly a uh, this amazing sight of these two beautiful women walking into town, right? They were looking rough. And the, the people in, in those times, there would be people sitting in the gates, and when, when travelers showed, they would welcome them or... Or, you know, check to see what their business was there. And this is not, and and like, I mean, you can see it with Lot. Lot would wait and there was business. If there was somebody of prominence come in, then people would be trying to reach out to them to see if there was business that could be done, money to be made, right? really not that much different than what we have here. Now it's just a completely different way that it happened. But there's always people wanting that. Well, when Ruth and Naomi walk into town... There's nobody saying, oh, let me get to them first. They're obviously rich. Okay? There is nothing left. There is that nothing to see there but despair as far as the eye can see. But the women, the women and the whole town stirred. Naomi has returned. So this shows us a couple of things. First thing it shows us is they were well known. Naomi and Limelech, when they left, were well known. The whole town knew who this was when she came back. And and news didn't travel like it does now back then. Now maybe they had gotten word of Elimelech's death. Um, but it wasn't immediate. It was, you know, the way word traveled, it took a long time to get there. You never knew for sure. And so when Naomi shows back up, the town just kind of gets a buzz to it. Naomi has returned. The other thing that we know from this statement is, There had been a lot of change occur since they had left. I mean, they come and ask, and I think this is an honest question. When the women come and ask, they say, is this Naomi? Is this Naomi? She had changed enough that they probably didn't recognize her. Now remember, they were prominent people, evidently probably wealthy when they left. And so she was probably in a lot better condition. And when she comes back, she's probably starving. She's probably very hungry, very skinny. Ten days of travel. When they left, they probably had animals to carry their burden. They probably had servants to help them. When she comes back, just her and the daughter-in-law. And, of course, age has occurred as well. And it was probably strange. You know how when you're see, you used to always seeing somebody with somebody else, and then you see them by yourself in a place that you're not used to, even though you recognize them, you don't recognize them. It happened to me yesterday. There was a guy who had visited this church, and he was at our livestock show. The only difference was he had a cowboy hat on. I'd never seen him with a cowboy hat, but I didn't recognize him at first. But I'm thinking I'm used to seeing different people in that setting, you know. That's kind of, that could also happen when she shows up without Elimelech, without her sons. They were used to seeing her with him. And in verse 20, she said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. And the reason she said this is because the name Naomi means pleasant, but the name Mara means bitterness. So we see here Naomi making a choice to be bitter. Nowhere in the passage does God change her name. Her God-given name was Naomi. Pleasantness. But she couldn't see the pleasantness through the fog. Right, The sun was blocked in her mind. She couldn't see what God was doing. All she could see was the bitterness that was surrounding her. But it's and at first glance, it's easy to get down on Naomi here, almost like she's wallowing. Let's not forget her anguish, her situation. Probably most of us have never experienced hunger like this, right? Probably most of us have um, usually know where our next meal is coming from. Maybe not all. I don't know. Uh, but I know this: I've never experienced loss like she had experienced. If anybody's ever experienced the loss of a child, I've known some people that have. And you talk about severe anguish when you look into those people's eyes. And she had lost two and a husband. So let's not act like she's uh, wallowing in self-pity here, although it might be a little bit of that. But let's not act like we're somehow better, right? Right? Because apart from God's grace, we would all fall into utter despair in that situation. John Piper says, with what Naomi says here, he says, I would take Naomi's theology any day over the sentimental views of God which dominate evangelical magazines and books today. Why? Naomi is sure of three things, and she says them. God exists. She does not deny, no matter how bad the anguish gets, she does not deny the existence of God. She is still sure of that. God is sovereign. She doesn't deny the fact that He allowed and is in control of what's going on. And then she says that God has afflicted her. See, the problem with those sentimental views of God Piper was talking about is that they fail to recognize the God of the Bible. Many of our church goers, church attenders today, fail to recognize the God of the Bible. Or they fail to recognize the God of the Old Testament, who is the same as the God of the New Testament, who is the God of the Bible. They want to try to separate that God of the Old Testament, He was cruel and harsh and this God of the New Testament is full of grace and mercy. No, no, no. No. It is the same God. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That God who may sh- show evidence of being harsh in the Old Testament was also, also shows great evidence of being merciful and graceful in the Old Testament. As we're going to see as we go through the book of Ruth. It's the same God. And the same God that has given us grace in this age, in this time, is that same God who is just and will bring judgment and is bringing judgment at the same time. It's the same God. They fail to recognize the fact that God may indeed cause you affliction in order to bring repentance even to His children. Even to those who are born again in Christ, God may bring you affliction. Why? He's doing it with Naomi. Why? To bring you to repentance. Naomi had ran away. She had left her homeland. She had left her people. She was in a foreign land where she was not supposed to be. And God says, I'm bringing you home. We don't know God's relationship with Elimelech and her sons. We're not given that information. Don't know it. But we know this. We know God had a purpose for for Naomi. And he had a purpose for Ruth. And so hes they're out there in that land. And he says, that's enough. I'm going to put enough anguish on you to bring you home. And some of you may be in a situation like that today spiritually or physically. I don't know. You may be under anguish because you're running from God. You may be not fulfilling the duties that He has given you. Or you may be indulging in a particular sin and you find yourself in some sort of despair. And He will continue. If you belong to Him, He will not let you go. And He will bring you back. You know, as a shepherd... You know how... When you read about sheep herding in the Bible, it was much different than it was now. The shepherd lived with the sheep, basically. They would herd them. Do you you know how a shepherd would, if you had a young lamb that constantly ran off? I mean, if a young lamb runs off and you're in Israel, in that country, it's not going to last long out there by himself. There were lots of predators, wolves, lions, that would get that thing, I mean and it's dead. Sheep are very, very helpless to predators. So what a shepherd would do to keep a lamb from running off is it would break its leg. Seems crazy, right? Well then, the sheep couldn't run off anymore. And by the time the leg healed, he would have such a bond with the shepherd, he couldn't, he wouldn't. He didn't want to run off anymore. He would stay with the flock. And and God is our great shepherd. And He will do that. Not that He'll break your leg physically, although He might. I don't know. But He will cause you, and that's what trials are many times for the Christian. It's not this, you come to Christ and you don't have any more problems. I think everybody in this room can attest to that. Sometimes you might have more problems. Sometimes your family may not want to talk to you anymore. Sometimes every time you talk to your family it may be fighting and you know because they don't like this new you. You're taking this religion thing a little too serious, aren't you? You know. And and but any of those trials, maybe it's sickness. Maybe it's your finances. All of a sudden you come to Christ and you don't do finances the same anymore. You may have to quit a job because there's corrupt things going on and you can't, as a Christian, partic- part- participate in that. You know, Whatever it is, God will bring trials. And it may not be anything like that. It may just be um, hard times, people you're having to deal with. We live in a fallen world. You're dealing with sinners. But through those trials, God draws you closer to Himself. It's like the lamb with the broken leg. And by the time you go through it, you've drawn so much closer to him, you don't want to leave any longer. That's what God is doing with Naomi here. So those sentimental views that we have today, they fail to recognize that God may indeed cause you affliction. Spurgeon said this, he said, At the present day, I am afraid that nine people out of ten do not believe in the God who is revealed to us in the Bible. Spurgeon lived a little while ago. I would suggest that in our current age, in our current culture, it's worse. There's a lot more people professing to be Christians who haven't ever read the Bible. So how can they understand and believe the God of the Bible? He went on to say this, The God of Abraham is dethroned by many nowadays, and in his place they have a molluscious God, like those of whom Moses spoke, new gods that come newly up whom your fathers feared not. It's idolatry. How many times have you ever heard, well, my God would never do that. My God would never send somebody to hell. My God would never punish you because of what you've done here. My God would never allow cancer. The only reason that cancer is in is because you. you don't have enough faith. Whatever it is, over and over, my God wouldn't, my God wouldn't, my God would. Your God doesn't exist if that's the case. The question is, what does the Bible say? And what would that God do and not do? That's the God. And they fail to recognize the fact that God is in control even in difficult times. Last time we talked, we talked about Jesus on the ship during the storm, and how when he calmed the storm, the disciples they relaxed. And the question is, were they any safer during the storm or after the storm? They were on the boat with Jesus. He was in control whether the storm is raging or whether it's calm. He's in complete control. He is, in, he is the one who decides if you're safe or you're not safe. And God is in control even in the difficult times. Naomi realized this. This comes through as she spoke. When she said, don't call me Naomi, she understood that truth. And she fully realized a lot of her current situation was also brought on by her actions. And God was dealing with it. She understood that stuff. But there was a problem with Naomi's theology. And that was either that she didn't seem to recognize or had forgotten what God had taught Joseph. And that is, what, God, what man means for evil, God means for good. She seemed to be doing at this time like we all do, and that is to focus on ourselves and on our situation rather than to focus on God. And that's what Naomi was doing. Naomi was self-sighted. She was looking at herself, at her current situation, My husband's dead. My sons are dead. I'm starving. God is dealing bitterly with me. But she was failing to turn that view around and to look to God. Look to the one who gave her life. Look to the one who's in control. She believed he was in control, but she wasn't turning to him. She wasn't repenting and putting her faith and trust in him. She forgot that her story was not finished yet. And I think that's where we fail a lot of times when we get in trials, when we get in hard times, and we think it looks so desperate, it looks so helpless, and yet the story is not finished yet. And we can all look back in our lives and we can see how God was working through trials before that we've been through and we've come through, and how He so intricately worked for our good and for His glory in those. And yet, then when we get to the next trial, it's still again. We we can only see here. And we forget, it's not over. This painting is not finished. You may not be able to tell what it is yet, but it's not finished. The focus was too much on her. She says, look how bitter God has dealt with me. And if you're in this, if you're in a trial like that, or it really doesn't matter what you're in, this is the thing to remember that God is more concerned with your holiness than with your happiness. And I believe, I mean, if you watch TV shows today, um, if you listen to people talk in general, there is a lot of talk about being happy. You deserve to be happy. I just want you to be happy. And all of this thing about being happy. And being happy is a false idea. It's temporary at best. You can finally get to that place where you're happy. And how long is that going to last? A friend of ours, John Burwell, or Jack Burwell, um, Spent some time in Bangladesh as a missionary, missionary that live up in know, Montana or Washington or something. He was telling me one time, he was out street, street evangelizing. And somebody came by, and he tries to give him a gospel tract. And the guy says, no, no, I'm good. He goes, well, why don't you just take this? He says, no, no, I'm happy. And the guy was walking off, and he said it just kind of just came to him. It won't last. And the guy stopped and turned around and they got to have a really good conversation about why it wouldn't last. And here's the reality. Your happiness, the way that the world views happy, the way that we mean it when we say happiness, you deserve to be happy, all this stuff, it's temporary. Because why? We're living in a fallen world. Our bodies are dying. We're all going to die at some point. Our loved ones are going to pass away. There's going to be sickness. There's going to be disappointment. There's going to be heartache. There's going to be pain. Why? Because we live in this fallen world. So your happiness, if it's tied up in anything temporal in this world, it is fleeting at best and probably false in the first place. But your joy that's found in Christ, that's found in God, that's found in holiness and righteousness that we are pursuing, will last forever. And we don't deserve it. I have news for everybody here, including myself. I don't deserve to be happy. I deserve judgment. But because God is rich in mercy, He has granted us hope. Hebrews 12.11 says, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The peaceful fruit of righteousness. This discipline that comes on us that sometimes we don't understand. And there may be times when you fall down on your knees and you cry out to God and just, God, why is this happening? Why are you doing this to me? And the reality is it may be for somebody else. Consider Naomi in this, in this particular thing. Ruth was a Moabitess. She was a pagan. She was lost over there in Moab. And even though they maybe shouldn't have left, it was still in God's plan. It was still God's sovereignty to go get Ruth. And it took maybe three deaths to bring them to this point of, "Your people shall be my people, and your God shall be my God." Look at verse 21. <clears throat> it says, "I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty." Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So we see this again, we see the three things Ruth's recognize or Naomi she's recognizing God exists. She recognizes that he is in control and she recognizes that he is dealing with her specifically. But this is where bitterness leads us. She's missing something, is she not? She says, "I went out way, I went away full, but now I've been brought back empty." Empty? She's brought back empty. What about this young lady standing by her side named Ruth, who has professed faith in the true God, who has said, "Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people." Is that empty? If we lose one but save another, are we coming back empty? No. Do the angels rejoice when one repents? That's what the Scripture says, right? I think sometimes we forget how big of a deal it is for a sinner to be brought to repentance. It took God Himself... Jesus Christ dying on a cross, laying in a tomb for three days and coming out of that tomb by the power of his own will, ascending to heaven and sitting on the throne in order for one person to come to repentance. That's how big a deal it is. It is not this easy thing where come say a prayer and you're saved and you did such a great job and you've made this great decision now to serve God. No, it took God dying. That's a big deal. What we see here with Ruth is a big deal. If anybody has ever, I know everybody has... There's somebody in your life that you think, there's just no way. Man, there's no way that person's ever going to be a believer. Maybe it's a college professor that just rails on Christianity. Maybe it's a family member that's caught up in complete unbelief. Maybe it's somebody that's just so hard and cold that you just think, no, there's no way. Well, let me tell you something. The Moabites were about that way. To think of a Moabite coming to Christ would have been about as ridiculous as somebody imagining an Apostle Paul or Saul coming to Christ. The one who was persecuting the church, having Christians put to death, held the coat of the first martyr Stephen, held the coat of the ones who stoned him. Do you think anybody was saying, there is no way Saul is going to come to Christ? Sure, because that's our nature. We all, we all have people like that. Well, that's what Ruth was. That's what she was. And yet, she has now come to Christ. But Naomi says, I was empty. Brought, brought back empty. It leads us to blindness. The bitterness leads us to blindness of the blessings that we have. All we want to do is focus on the negative. Is there anybody that does that? Anybody focusing on the negative right now rather than the blessings? And, and see, she didn't understand she's forgotten as well. Not just the fact that Ruth has been converted. Ruth is now serving the true and living God. But she's also forgetting about the possibility of redemption. Not spiritual redemption, but physical Redemption through God's provisions, and through Ruth. And we'll see that as we go on. It's hard not to go on into it, but there is a provision there that we'll see with Ruth, with Boaz, who comes to redeem her. And provide, and and they will not have to worry about food anymore. But she's forgot about that. And she's also forgot about... The goodness of God and bringing them home in the time that he is. In verse 22. <clears throat> so Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her. Who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Easy to read over that. Easy to think, okay. Barley harvest is going on. Without knowing a lot of background about the barley harvest, that seems pretty insignificant. But you got to understand, barley was the first grain crop that would have been harvested in the spring. So grain crops are neat because they grow in the winter. And barley was one of the first ones to mature. So at the barley harvest would have been at the end of a long, cold, dead winter. And this is another thing we don't understand. We have such great ways to store food. We have such great ways to preserve food. Um, we have food all through the winter. And, and shipping and transportation, I mean, you can eat apples in January here, right? I mean, it's incredible. We can eat an orange right now in February. That used to not be a thing, which is why, you ever wonder why the, the tradition of putting fruit in a stocking at Christmas well, it actually was a big deal at one point in time. If you got an orange at Christmas, it was incredible because you didn't get fruit for the winter. Well, that's kind of what we see here. During that winter, they had, they had put away food and usually just enough to make the winter. And when you're getting at the end of that time, you're probably rationing things pretty tight. It's getting, I mean, you're about out of food. And praying for the God of the harvest to grant a good barley harvest because this is going to be the first time you get to eat again and really get full. We don't understand that. We get full a lot in our culture, right? But they're having to wait. And then when that barley harvest hits, it's the end of this cold, dead winter. And now we have this awesome time. We have grain. We can make bread and we can feast. But there's more to it spiritually speaking it's it's even more significant the barley harvest also marked the feast of first fruits the feast that celebrated a s- small part of the larger harvest to come so you got the barley comes in and they had a feast and it was the feast of first fruits we would harvest this small bit to represent the larger harvest which was to come which would have been the other grains wheat and corn and all the other grains that they grew but barley came off first it was the first fruits and they had this this great feast to celebrate this first fruit but God doesn't make feasts just for feasts he doesn't make feasts to celebrate food it was a representation of something much greater to come which hopefully you know that Christ is the first fruits turn to 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty. <coughs> first Corinthians fifteen twenty, it says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What Naomi failed to realize was when she came back at the beginning of barley harvest, it was God's providence, it was God's perfect timing. She is arriving back at the first fruits. She didn't maybe understand, I don't know how many of them did, just the significance of the first fruit feast. But that barley that was being harvested was a representation of Christ. It was a guarantee when you harvested the barley, hey, there's a whole lot more harvest to come. And now as we see in Corinthians, as we see looking back on the cross, that Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of what? A much greater harvest. That much greater harvest is us. Brethren, we get to be part of the harvest. As Christ was resurrected, so shall we. So shall those who are in Christ. That's an amazing thing. Look at verse 21. For as by a man came death, and by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Adam brought it to us. We're cursed in Adam. Everybody who sinned, I mean, everybody who is born, was born into sin under Adam. We're living in this curse. But praise God, Christ, the God-man, through Him can come resurrection. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at His coming those who belong to Christ. So we're seeing, Naomi shows back up and she's seeing this amazing feast. She's seeing this amazing harvest go on. There's all this barley everywhere. There's a plenty. God has ended the famine in the land of Israel and He's demonstrating His power and His might and His provisions through this harvest. And they're going to have a feast and she gets there just in time. She gets there just in time for this big feast. And wonder wonder at what point she realized there's more to this than me. There's more to this than my hunger. Oh God, when she got her belly full the first time, did she realize, oh God, how weak is my faith that I did not trust You through the storm. How weak is my faith That I would consider myself bitter rather than blessed. How many times do we get to that point and we look back and we say, Oh God, how weak am I? How weak is my faith that I did not see past the storm? And then back in Corinthians, he says, in verse 24, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God. The Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. See, because you have to know this too. In every harvest, there's two harvests. In every harvest, there's two things harvested. It's the wheat and the chaff. So as they're harvesting this barley, there's no doubt tares that have grown up in it. We have it, I mean, anybody that's ever grown anything knows that it's not just going to be the crop. There's going to be weeds. And there were weeds that looked an awful lot like the crop. But as they harvest, it was sifted. It was sorted. And because of this first fruits, because of the first fruits, which is Christ, there will be a great harvest. And those who are in Christ are going to be resurrected just like He was. We're going to be part of the big harvest. But those who aren't will be sifted and cast into the fire. And maybe Naomi couldn't see this yet. Maybe she couldn't see, but she was starting to. As she shows up and the first fruits is going on. And the harvest is going on and there's Barley there, even for the poor, they can go glean the fields. We're going to learn more about that as we go on into the book of Ruth. But maybe she couldn't see it yet. The incredible hand of God weaving and knitting this redemption story together perfectly. Maybe she couldn't see yet how God was going to use this Gentile heathen in the lineage of Christ. Not of what they would call royal blood. Not even of children of Jacob. Not a child of Israel. No. A Moabite. Out there in her heathen land that God says, No. I choose you. Ruth. I choose you. I am going to protect you. I am going to send this Family after you, I'm going to cause all kinds of despair. But through all of that, I'm bringing you to Israel. I'm making you one of mine. Your people, my people, they're the same. I'm going to send you Boaz, and you are going to have children that are going to eventually be the great grandfathers of Jesus Christ the Redeemer. And Naomi was not forgotten. Naomi was well remembered. She's in the Bible. Ruth was not forgotten. She's in the lineage of our Savior. And that is an incredible thing, but they could not see it yet at the time. And That's that's our lesson today. Whatever trial, whatever hard times have become, become on us, or whatever good times, whatever rejoicing that we are in, We know this, that God is in control, and He is seeking His children, and He will bring them to repentance, and He will gather them the way a shepherd gathers his sheep, and He will protect them perfectly. There will be no wolves that can destroy. There will be not one sheep lost in this journey. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, God, for uh, your sovereign power and your will that works perfectly even through our mistakes, your will that continues on through our weaknesses, and your strength that shows evidently strong in our weaknesses. God, I, I praise you for that. I praise you for your mercy to all people, to all kinds for your redemption plan and how we see it so amazingly worked throughout scriptures. And I pray that each would examine today God, um, how you've your redemption plan in our own lives. What an amazing story as I think back and I look at times when I was like Naomi and couldn't see past my face and but you were working. On my behalf. I pray Lord that we would have more sight. More foresight to see more. And to think more. And to trust more in what you're doing in our lives. In Jesus name I pray. Amen.